0: Let me read for you the first 13 verses of Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues each of us in his own native language. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. One of history's most puzzling problems that non-Christian historians have is this. How could a discouraged, dejected, depressed small group of men, turned the world of the day upside down. Those words were actually spoken by pagans in Athens who acknowledged that Paul and his fellow believers in Christ, they had turned the rule upside down. They were making so much influence in the world that things were just changing quite a bit. How could that possibly happen? Well, the answer is, what happened at Pentecost? The great day of Christ's birth we celebrate, the Incarnation. We recognize the great day of His crucifixion at the cross. We recognize the day of His glorious resurrection. And, of course, the day of His ascension into heaven at the right hand of the Father. Let us not forget, however, the day of Pentecost, which climaxed these very other, the other very important days. I mentioned to you that Pentecost was a wonderful time, very popular, joyous celebration by the Jews as they gathered, and year after year they celebrated this. The day of Pentecost had come and gone, come and gone, come and gone about 1,500 times since it was first begun. But now this day is going to come, but it's going to have great, great significance. We find them gathered together in verse 2. Why were they there in this particular place? What place was that? Well, later on, you'll find a reference to the house. Was it a house or was it in the upper room? Was it in a larger room like at the temple, a big hall or something like that? The reason for that is we're not sure how many were there. Was it just the 12 disciples or apostles now? Was it the 120 that are mentioned Uh, earlier in chapter 1. we're not sure. I'll let you make your choice which one you want. But whoever it was, they were there because back in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, Jesus gave them a certain order. He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John, baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. In John chapter 14, we learn Jesus also said this to his disciples, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And so here they were in Jerusalem, this particular place, And the day began with waiting, waiting for whatever it was, the the spirit, whatever that means fully. They didn't understand what's going on here. They're waiting. There was a little boy who once tried to get his kite flying in the air. If you've ever flown a kite, you know you have the kite itself, then you have a tail of some kind, some cloth or whatever it might be. And then you have the string and then you start running along and you try to get the thing up into the air. Well, this little boy was doing that over and over and over again. The kite kept flying down. He tried, kept trying to make adjustments. It wasn't working until one of his friends came by one day and he said, you have to wait for the wind. No wind, no kite flying. What happens in verse 2? And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. I read one commentator who I think got carried away with describing this. Let me read what he said. The stillness of the air was suddenly stirred in gusts of breeze at first. Then in a rush of a mighty wind like a blast of a hurricane, a violent wind shook the room The disciples staggered about trying to keep their footing like sailors on the bow of the ship in a stormy high sea. Is that what really happened here? I don't think so. It's an important word here in verse 2 we need to notice. That word is sound. There was a sound like a mighty wind. That's the emphasis. You heard the sound. Now, if you've ever been in your home, and a big wind begins to blow, especially in the middle of the night. It's kind of eerie, kind of scary. You wonder if a tree doesn't topple over or something doesn't get blown around too much. Especially if you're in a hurricane or a tornado, then the wind really is blowing, and the sound just is like a a thousand uh, railroad cars or a hundred jets going by. People say it's just almost deafening. This is what these... Disciples gathered here in Jerusalem, in this place, heard there, and the sound just filled the entire house where they were sitting. What a fitting symbol of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is like the wind. He can go wherever He wants to. He's not confined, not contained. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. A new age was coming on the day of Pentecost. And the first people to catch it caught it by ear. The sound. That's the first evidence that God was doing something. The sound. What does Paul say in Romans 10:17? Faith comes by hearing. Not seeing something, but hearing. And hearing by the Word of God. That's what happened here. Verse 3, something new, another new thing occurs. First the sound, then sight. Divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Notice the words as of. Doesn't mean there was actually fire burning up there and their heads were beginning to get rather warm. And they were afraid they were going to get their scalps burned. Nothing like that. But they did see these little tongues of fire. Now, I used to think, I guess based upon uh, drawings that I grew up with, that they were like uh, double tongues. You had over Peter, there was a double one, over Thomas, there's another double fire like that. And that could be. But another way I'm more comfortable with is that they were distributed over everyone in the room, not just one or two. Everyone could see the fire over them, in addition to the wind there. Another fitting symbol of the Holy Spirit. Fire is much, many times related to power. Fire is related to such things as purifying. Fire spreads. Fire illuminates all fitting symbols of the Spirit to go along with the wind symbol as well. On each one of them, each one were equal in with this. When we come to verse 4, we come to what theologians have called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to get into that in detail, but I'm going to allude to a few things. First of all, this occurrence on the day, this amazing day of Pentecost, occurred in Scripture only three other times beside here. It occurred in the 8th chapter of Acts, when Peter and John were with the Samaritans And the Holy Spirit came upon them. It occurred in Acts chapter 10, when they were in the house of Cornelius, the the Gentile uh, soldier. And it came upon his house. And then interestingly, in chapter 19, it comes upon this rather unusual group. They were disciples of John the Baptist, and they had never even heard of the Holy Spirit. So they had to be instructed, and it says the Spirit also came upon them. Other than those four occurrences in Scripture, particularly the first three, uh, we don't read anything like this happening again in the New Testament. It's interesting that when, John, when Jesus gave his disciples the words in Acts one eight, what did he say? You will be my witnesses in all Jerusalem and Judea, that's what's happening here in our text, and in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. Jerusalem, Samaria, the house of Cornelius, the Gentile. And so I think that's the significance of why these particular special baptisms of the Spirit, outpouring of the Spirit, came at those particular times. What happened here? What's this all about? Well, in the Old Testament, believers had the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, they would never have been converted. Their hearts would never have been opened up. You need the Holy Spirit to do that. There were certain people like Samson and others and David. We read that the Spirit came upon them in a very special way. That's true. But nothing like this particular day of Pentecost in which the Holy Spirit was poured out in abundance upon the new community, the new body of Christ, exemplified by these people, whether they're 12 or the 120, meeting in that particular place. All believers have the Spirit. Paul writes in Romans 8 9, You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. If you're a believer, you have to have the Holy Spirit, otherwise you could not be a believer. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slave or free, all were made to drink of one Spirit. So that's a real blessing that we have today. Ephesians 5, 4, Paul speaks of one Lord, one faith, one baptism, called the baptism of the Spirit. But what about this word filling there in verse 4? It says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Normally... The filling is what continues from once you become a believer in your life. On this particular day, the baptism and the filling all happen all at one time. The filling, as I would understand, it, is simply believers living in the Spirit, producing what? The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, temperance, faith, etc. It's living our lives out before the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. Think of a balloon. Take a balloon. Ideally, you want it blown up as far as it can go. You blow it, you blow it, blow it get it bigger and bigger. It's rare it is, a big, huge, filled balloon. But let's face it, it doesn't take long for the air to begin to leak out of it. Or maybe when you're blowing it up, you can't quite get it all the way full. But you get it halfway, three-quarters of the way. Give it to a little child, and the little child huffs and puffs, and just a little bit of air gets in there. But It's being filled. So the Holy Spirit in our life, we sometimes we fill the balloon up. We wake up in the morning and we're feeling close to the Lord. We read our scripture, we have prayer and so on. And we are well, I'm ready to take the, the day. Lord, bless me this day. Give me the courage to stand for you. And we're really filled with the Spirit. And other days we get up and eh, not quite that great. We don't doubt our salvation. But we just realize we're not serving God like we should. So the filling of the Spirit is based upon the baptism of the Spirit. When we're converted, the Spirit comes and dwells in us. And the filling is to continue there. Going on to verse, the end of verse 4, something else new is introduced here. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. What were these tongues? First there's the sound of the wind, then the sight of the fire, and now the speech of these tongues. Well, the Greek word, glossalia, means simply language. Normal languages. They began to speak in normal language. That's how the word, what the word means. One purpose was to attest to the Jews that Judaism was obsolete, Christianity was now the flowering forth of all that had been prophesied and prepared for in the Old Testament era. Now a new era was coming. No longer were they to be identified with Judaism, but with the new Christian faith. Also, it was a judgment against the Jews for their disbelief in Christ and even their crucifixion of him. Way back in Isaiah, chapter 28, verse 11, Isaiah says, For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue the Lord will speak to His people. And that's happening right here on this day of Pentecost. In 1 Corinthians 14, verses 21 and 22, In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are, are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Interesting. We could explore that further, but we won't. But this is another purpose of the tongues. But thirdly, and obviously, it was to enable the gospel message of Jesus Christ crucified and risen to be able to be communicated to these Jews that had come from all over the world. It was in understood languages, not in strange gibberish. What's that all about? We don't even understand what that would be. People speaking in gibberish. The Lord wants the gospel to be understood in language that people can understand. Challenging the mind, not just the emotions. So we have sound, sight, speech on this very amazing, remarkable day of Pentecost, each demonstrating the fulfillment of the promise of the Holy Spirit that Jesus had told about to his disciples. All spoke the same gospel as we do today. Christ crucified and risen, the answer to our sin problem. Tongues were never meant to make the disciples feel good meant to communicate something. And so I would understand that the gift of tongues is, was a transitional thing, a temporary thing for that apostolic age, the age of the apostles. And when the apostles faded away from the scene and when the scriptures were completed, there was no more need for that. God and His providence chose that through arduous language study and through uh, the work of men studying the scriptures, that takes a long time to do all that. Look at the original languages and study the texts and put things together to preach and to teach and to share. This is how God in providence has worked it out ever since this day of Pentecost. Rather than boom all once giving you the ability to talk to whoever you want to, if you have, let's say, you have a Spanish-speaking friend and you say, "Boy, I wish I could communicate in Spanish to him or her. I think they would understand me better." Well, that's not the way God has worked it out. We have to learn the language and do our best to share Christ with them. So don't expect this to happen in 2020. Don't expect rushing wind, tongues of fire, go off, start yakking in some kind of strange gibberish. Nothing like that. Not even to speak in another language fluently. You have to learn that language. and don't let that bother you because in a way... We have something much greater than speaking in tongues and hoping to hear wind and that sort of thing. We have this book, the Bible. On the day of Pentecost, we read later in the chapter that 3,000 people were converted that very day. But since that day, untold numbers of hundreds and thousands and probably millions of people have come to know the Lord through the preaching and teaching of the Bible and the sharing of the gospel. So we're in a far better shape having this than having to wait to be zapped by the Holy Spirit to get us to do something. We go to the Scriptures, we hear them taught to us, preached to us, proclaimed to us, and we respond to it in this way. At verse 5, the scene shifts from the small group there And to these Jews who were dwelling there in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven, every nation in the Roman world, not on the whole planet. They kind of came from just from everywhere. After the Babylonian exile, people left Babylon. Many, a little small remnant, went back to the promised land, as we talked about last week. But many of them spread out into the known Roman world. They took with them a belief in one God. They took with them the belief in the Ten Commandments, the law of God. But nevertheless, they remained unconverted without Christ. Here in the providence of God, amazingly, he brings all these many, many Jews together in one place so that they can hear in their own language the gospel and the love of Jesus. Very interesting to think about that. In Their own language. Everybody spoke the common Koine Greek, but they were amazed to hear people talking in the language they used back in their homes, in their homeland. How is this possible? They were bewildered. They were amazed at this. Look at verses 9 through 11. I'm not going to read those again, but I will point this out to you how Luke has structured it listing these. He begins with nations that were to the eastern part of the Roman Empire, and then he moves northwest, and then to the south, like Egypt and Africa, North Africa, then way out to the west to Rome, and then he comes back to Crete and winds up with the Arabians, which would be sort of southeast. He's exemplifying how these people were from all over the Roman world on this particular day, hearing the gospel of Christ. And what do they hear? Look at the end of verse 11. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. What were those mighty works? Centered in the works of Jesus Christ, his remarkable birth, his three years of ministry his miracles, what he said, how he said it, how he treated people. And that had a remarkable death on the cross. What a terrible thing that was. Yes, and you people were responsible. Your people crucified him. Peter goes on to say in his sermon, so they heard about the death of Christ. They heard, of course, about the resurrection of Christ. Don't forget that in this group were many people, if not all of them, who have been eyewitnesses of the risen Christ. So undoubtedly they heard about that and about his ascension to heaven. Is the world saying that today about our churches? They hear the mighty works of God or are they hearing mostly about the mighty works of men and how much we have done and what good people we are and how we ought to help one another, all very fine things but not the same as the wonderful works of God. Verse 12 picks up from verse 8. Remember verse 8, how that ended? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Now we jump to verse 12. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? So the impression was made and you would think at this point, everybody there is just could hardly wait to hear more about this. Their hearts are all open, they're ready to believe. Ah, didn't take long for the mockers to show up. End of or in verse 13. But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. These people are drunk. They're nuts. Don't listen to them. We don't know how many of them there were, but there's quite a number of them probably. And that was their reaction. This stupendous miracle of Pentecost didn't bring conviction to their hearts at all. They were unmoved. Now that's as far as our text this morning takes us. I do want to just make a comment a little bit, verses 14 and 15. Luke who steps up, In verse 14, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Peter, the wishy-washy disciple, the guy who was a coward in the shadow of Christ's crucifixion. Strong in many ways and yet weak in so many ways. Here is Peter, of all people, standing up in front of this large audience of Jews, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Immediately he confronts the mockers. Then of verse 14, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. People don't get imbibed, start imbibing that early in the day. You can't blame this on their drunkenness. And then he launches into one of the greatest sermons ever preached in the history of the Christian faith, Peter's great sermon on the day of Pentecost. So, what can we apply to ourselves today about the amazing day back in this text, the day of Pentecost? Briefly, eight things. So you can just mark mark them off wondering how much longer is he going to go. Number one, we acknowledge the Holy Spirit's work in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the Holy Spirit, and yet the Holy Spirit remains to many an anonymous, faceless aspect of the divine being, not as well known as the Father and the Son. I grew up using the Apostles' Creed, but not Holy Spirit. We always said the Holy Ghost. You wonder what little kids thought. I don't remember what I, all I thought, but I guess I thought it was a rather strange word to use of the Lord, the Holy Ghost. Now that's been mostly people use the Holy Spirit today, but spirit, same basic idea. So he's not as well known. We need to appreciate more his gracious presence in our lives. Number two, just as the resurrection is the evidence of the power of the resurrection of of his death and what it accomplished, the coming of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost is evidence of Christ's enthronement in heaven at the right hand of the Father. And so from that position, as it were, he rules our hearts. He operates in our lives. So we sometimes speak about Christ in our lives. We sometimes speak about the Spirit. We say the Spirit of Christ, Christ's Spirit. The whole doctrine of the mystery of the Trinity, you know, we have to kind of pull these things together as best we can. But we need to realize that that's how the Spirit operates, glorifying the Son. Number three, Pentecost was a reversal of Babel. What happened to Babel in Genesis 12? The languages were confounded. People began speaking in different languages. They didn't understand one another. And so they were were divided and they scattered. But on the day of Pentecost, there's not scattering There's unity together. There's not confusion. There's understanding. There's not praise to men, but praise to God. Number four, Pentecost showed that the gospel was for all people, all kinds of people, laying the foundation for the worldwide evangelization, which has happened since the day, this amazing day. I hope you realize that in the world today, virtually every continent And many of the islands of the sea have received the gospel. And they're still receiving it. Our missionaries are still out there proclaiming the truth. And so it's happened as the Holy Spirit spreads that message out. Number five. Never before had there been such an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. As I mentioned earlier, even Old Testament people had the Holy Spirit. David, Daniel, Moses, Malachi, Deborah, Hannah, you know, a variety of people. We read the Spirit came upon in a very special way. We need to appreciate more how blessed we are that we have the Spirit in abundance, dwelling in our hearts by faith, if our trust is in Jesus Christ. He's in us. He's with us every day, every hour of the day and night. Number six. This day was not just an individual event for the people who were there, like Peter and the disciples. It was also the point of great transition from what the Lord had been doing in the Old Testament to building up and establishing the new body of Christ. A new era had come. It signifies the beginning of what's called the now, N-O-W, the now of the day of salvation. Listen to what's said in 2 Corinthians 6.2. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and on a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Ever since the amazing day of Pentecost, there have been day after day in which we can say, this is the day of salvation. That's the message we give to our unsaved friends and the message given to the unsaved world. There's still time to believe in Christ. Christ has not yet returned. The final judgment has not yet occurred. Now is the time. If there's anybody in this room that has not yet done it, don't hesitate. Now is the time you need to get right with the Lord through your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Number seven, this new power also resulted in a wide and unknown distribution of gifts of ministry to all believers. We all have something we can do that God, by His Holy Spirit, enables us to do. Whether it's praying, whether it's giving, whether it's communicating, whether it's serving, whatever it might be, uh, it's all throughout the church. And number eight, and finally, Pentecost reminds us, folks, that the only real spiritual power that we can have as individuals and as a church is through and by the Holy Spirit. We need Him the early church was a spirit-filled church, particularly in these early days. And that's why this thing suddenly just took off and left its mark upon the world. And the power of the church was evidenced in the power of its members, not just the leaders, the power of its members. And so we've come full circle to the answer to the question at the beginning of my message this morning. How could a group of dispirited, depressed, discouraged men, a small group, turn the world upside down? The answer, the day of Pentecost, that amazing day when the Spirit of Christ was given to His people. Normally, I close my message with a prayer, but instead of doing that, you're going, you with me are going to sing a prayer, another prayer to the Holy Spirit. And that is number 338. Number 338. I'm going to go to the piano again. And I'll play that through for you. I think most of you are familiar with this one. Spirit of God, descend upon my heart. It's a prayer of uh, asking the Holy Spirit to give us new vision, to rededicate ourselves. And it ends with the use of a most beautiful metaphor. At the end of verse 5. My heart and altar... And thy love the flame. Let me play it through for you. and at the end of it, I'll have you stand, and we'll sing this.